real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast. Be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now on to the show. Be sure to grab your free copy of my list of 27 tools, resources, and software programs I use to run my businesses on a tight budget. You can get it at thesarahstjohn.com forward slash 27 tools. That's T-H-E-S-A-R-A-H-S-T-J-O-H-N dot com forward slash 27 tools. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah St. John, and my guest today provides high-quality legal services to entrepreneurs. His clients have varied in size from solo entrepreneurs to publicly traded companies. He has provided legal guidance on multi-million dollar rounds of fundraising, negotiated strategic partnerships with nationwide businesses and nonprofits, managed international intellectual property portfolios, and advised many innovative startups. Please welcome to the show, David Lizerbrom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into topics such as trademarks and copyrights and fair use and all of that. But I think where I want to start is where probably most people, kind of their first question when they're starting a business is whether or not they need to form an entity such as an LLC or a partnership or uh, a corporation. I I know the differences between them. I have an LLC myself, but for people who aren't sure of the differences and what route to go, I guess, can you kind of break down the differences? Yeah, absolutely. And you'll know that I'm definitely a lawyer because I'm going to say it depends probably uh, from time to time. And and of course, I always want to you know just make sure people know, of course, as a disclaimer that while I am a lawyer, I'm not your lawyer. So I'm not uh, providing legal advice and so forth, but just kind of, you know, on a general basis, happy to talk about any of this stuff. Yeah, a lot of times those terms are kind of thrown around or people might not know exactly what everything means. Basically, you know, in the US, it's very simple. If you start a business, you're selling something at a farmer's market, whatever type of business you want to start, if you do nothing, you're a sole proprietor. That's just what you are. That You don't have to file anything to become a sole proprietor. You just, the minute you start selling something or doing business, you're a sole proprietor. Partnership is very similar in the sense that if you are starting a business with another person and you just start business, you just get started. Your partners. Again, you don't necessarily need to file anything for that to become the case. That's just the term that we use for two or more people working together in business. Now, you can come up with a partnership agreement and documents, and there's taxes and all kinds of other things involved with it. There's different types of partnerships. I don't want to get into all that level of detail, but I'm just kind of defining the terms here. Each kind of form has its pros and cons, but with partnerships, generally speaking, and then also with sole proprietors, the advantages is very simple. Like I said, you don't necessarily have to file anything. However, what you don't get is liability protection. Meaning if somebody was to bring a lawsuit or some kind of claim against the business for whatever reason, they would go after your or you and your partner's personal assets. You know, you're being sued personally. And if you have any assets or future assets or whatever the case may be, those could potentially be attached in the lawsuit. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people, once they get into business, look to form a limited liability entity. So that could be either a corporation or an LLC. 
This is based on state law, but it's pretty similar across all the states. Again, people kind of use the LLC term and the corporation term interchangeably. They're not the same thing. So an LLC is not a corporation and vice versa. However, they are very similar in terms of the way they operate, at least in most states. Again, without getting into tons of detail, if you are looking for that kind of liability protection, typically either an LLC or a corporation will provide that to you. There's different pros and cons to each kind of version from tax standpoint and other things. But again, the idea being that if, let's say, somebody claims that a contract was breached or somebody was to get injured as a result of your business in some way, whether it's an employee or a customer or some other thing, something that would give rise to liability, that liability would attach to the assets of the LLC or the corporation. But in most cases, your own personal assets would be shielded, meaning somebody wouldn't necessarily be able to sue you as an individual. There's lots of exceptions, like, for example, professional jobs, you know, all kinds of other things. But this is just kind of talking at a high level. So the question people ask is like, well, when do I form an LLC? When do I form a corporation? And again, it really depends on the specifics of your business. But just kind of as a general guideline, things to think about is, okay, when is your business going to start getting the type of liability that would make it make sense? So it might be, uh, for example, when you have employees. Having employees brings all kinds of obligations under the law, whatever state you're in. And so that's a situation where it might be appropriate to form an LLC or a corporation. Another reason why people often form it is if they're getting money from investors. Any kind of investors, you don't have to be on the stock exchange. You could just be taking money from somebody as seed money to start the business or something like that. As soon as you're touching somebody else's money and kind of getting that fiduciary responsibility, it's probably smart at that point to consider forming something like an LLC or a corporation and going through there so that you're not personally taking somebody's money to start the business. There's many other reasons, pros and cons, happy to answer questions. But those are some of the things that often come up in terms of businesses when people are considering when the time is right to form a formal entity like an LLC or a corporation. And just the last point on that, Sarah, is that the liability protection I'm talking about only comes into play once that entity has been formed. Again, whether it's an LLC, a corporation, whatever it may be. So you don't get to go back in time. You know, if you do something that causes the liability to happen today, and then you form your LLC tomorrow, well, you're out of luck. You know, maybe that's advisable for different reasons. At that point, you can talk to your lawyer. But generally speaking, it doesn't look backwards in terms of protection. So you want to be thinking ahead before a problem arises. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that, but I'm sure some people try to get away with that. (laughs) (laughs) I know someone who their apartment was broken into and then they tried to get renter's insurance. Anyway. Tough to get insurance after the fact. Right, exactly. Actually, no, I think the situation was she had signed up for insurance like the day before, but the company thought that she was trying to pull that over on the, I I don't remember all the details, but it got declined because of how close it was. So that's a good point. You want to think ahead. Right, exactly. And some people have multiple businesses. And what I've done, and I'm wondering if this is the advisable thing to do, it's just what I decided to do, was I just formed an LLC and then all my other businesses are DBAs under the LLC. Like the LLC is the umbrella company and then the others are DBA, so I wouldn't have to file a million different LLCs. Is that the right way to go about it? Well, again, it just really depends on the circumstances. Of course, I'm not speaking to your particular circumstance. There's pros and cons to every different type of structure. The advantage, of course, of what you're describing is that you're only having to deal with taxes for one entity. You're only having to keep the books for one entity. If you have multiple LLCs or multiple corporations, typically they need separate bank accounts and other things to make them separate and segregated. That can 
at some point, once you get the numbers high enough, it could definitely be costly and, and a hassle. The downside is that any liability that is incurred in one of your businesses or your DBAs can attach to all of them. If something happens where there is a lawsuit or claim related to one of your lines of business, that could bring down the whole enterprise. That can be potentially a concern for clients. So again, we just have to look at each individual circumstance and realize the, the, the pros and cons and understand at that point whether it's advisable to start breaking things into separate entities, etc. That also can come into play if you have multiple investors or multiple people involved in the businesses. You know, If they're all just businesses that you yourself are doing, maybe that would be advisable, maybe not. But if you've got multiple businesses where you have other partners or other investors coming in, well, then you really can't have it all flow through through one LLC or corporation because we've got different investments happening and that can become pretty complicated and challenging. Yeah, those are good points. Yeah, with mine, they're kind of all related in a way. They're different business names. And so I just, for me, I think it's what made the most sense. But yeah, I guess it would determine on a variety of factors. So moving into trademarks, I know a lot of people get confused about the difference between a trademark and a copyright. And as far as I understand, a copyright would be more like you know, if you wrote a book, it would be copyrighted, whereas a trademark would be more for like a name or maybe a a slogan or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, people do get these confused all the time. One of my goals at the end of this conversation (laughs) is that your listeners are just going to walk away with this not being confused. They're never going to confuse copyrights and trademarks again. So let's just kind of define those. And and that education is really important for any entrepreneur, any business owner. So there's different types of intellectual property. They all kind of fall under that umbrella, but they're not the same. They're not necessarily even related. So let's start with copyrights. Copyright attaches to any individual individual work of creation. So anything you can create that would fall under copyright law. So anything you write, it doesn't have to be a full book. It could be a, a piece of your website or something like that. Anything you design or draw or illustrate, those are all copyright. Music, that's copyright. Video, that's copyright. Photos. So if you pick up your phone right now and take a photo, boom, you are the copyright owner of that photo, the instant that you create it. So all of us are creating copyrightable works all day long. You know, if you scribble something on a pad, a little doodle, that falls under copyright. If you write a piece of a, a written copy for your work, that falls under copyright, etc. So all these things fall under copyright. Again, I'm just speaking in generalities. We could talk all day long about copyright or any of these other things, but this is just the high level. You know, copyright is for individual works of expression, whether it's created by one person or a group. There's a whole way to go about protecting that. The next is trademark. And again, people get them confused. They're not the same thing. Trademarks identify the source of goods or services that are in the marketplace. So that could be the name of a business, the name of a product, a logo, a slogan, or tagline. A lot of different things can be trademarks, but those are some of the more common things. So the name of your business, the name of your podcast, that's a trademark. Again, you don't necessarily need to file anything in order for it to become quote unquote a trademark. It's a trademark just based on the virtue that it's part of your business. You're out there doing it. You have customers or you have listeners or you have clients or whatever it may be. They recognize this brand name. They recognize this logo. They recognize this slogan as associated with your business. Those are your trademarks. Now, again, there is a trademark office. There are advantages to going through the full registration process, etc. Again, I could talk about that all day long. Been doing that for almost 20 years for clients. But just for the purpose of definitions, it's important to know that a trademark really is anything that identifies and lets the customer you know, or whoever know that this is the source of your goods and services. Then just to kind of run down the list to make sure we're covering it, you know, the other thing that comes up most often is patents. Again, that falls under the umbrella of intellectual property, but it's not the same as copyright. It's not the same as trademark. Patents are 
a sort of legal monopoly that's created for an invention. An invention can be a physical invention. You think of Thomas Edison, or it could be a business process or you know something in the sciences like biology, something like that. Patents just kind of follow their totally their own channel. You need to work with a patent lawyer. You need to file it with the patent office. There's not a patent unless you actually file it. And there's a whole kind of other realm that applies to patents. But you could have all the things in your business. You could have a patentable invention, and then you have a brand name for that invention. So that's a trademark. And then you write a whole book about it to tell people how to use it or the advantages of it. Okay, now that's copyright, etc. But those are all different kind of elements. And they it's important just to make sure that they're clear in your mind. That helps. I didn't even think to ask about patent, but yeah. And then the trademark symbols, T, M, and R, the R with the circle around it. What is the difference between those? Yeah, so there's those are probably the two most common symbols you're going to see associated with trademarks. So the first one is just the capital letters TM. We refer to that as the quote unquote common law trademark. And really anybody can use that at any time. It's not really regulated by the law. The only thing you know you want to do is you're not going to want to stick that next to something that you know is somebody else's trademark. But if you have a brand, a business name, a logo, a tagline, a name of your product, whatever it may be that you believe, okay, well, as far as I know, I'm the only one who's using this. This is my brand. I, you know, I want people to know. You can stick that TM next to it immediately. You don't need anybody's permission. You don't need to file anything. It's just telling the world, hey, this is my brand. That's really all that does. It doesn't really have a legal effect. You don't have to do it. You can do it if you want but it doesn't really have a legal effect one way or the other. The other common symbol that you'll see is the registered trademark symbol, which is the R in the circle. That one does have a legal effect and it is regulated, meaning you can only use that once you have received a registration from the United States Patent and Trademark Office for these specific goods or services. So it doesn't mean that you've applied to register the trademark with the trademark office. That means you've actually gone through the whole process. And at the end of it, they sent you a physical registration certificate. And there's a copy that can be found online showing that this is in fact a valid and live active registered trademark. Those are the only circumstances where you're allowed to use that R in the circle for your brand in the US. So you know, just when you're going through the world, you're going to see these everywhere. You know, any almost any product you buy or anything, you'll see these symbols everywhere. And just know that if it, if you see the R in the circle, that means the person is saying, "Hey, this is a registered trademark." I often look these up when I see them out there, and most of the time they really are registered. Sometimes people use them and they're not, and you're not supposed to. You'll see them everywhere. And, and likewise with the TM, that typically means that it's not registered, but that the person is claiming rights in the brand name. It might be a pending trademark registration, meaning you've applied and it takes a long time to go through that whole process. So maybe you're just waiting for the trademark office to issue the registration. But in the interim, you just want to make sure that everybody knows this is your brand. You don't want anybody using it, etc. So you use the TM symbol. That's totally fine. You don't need my permission or anybody else's to use that symbol. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So you don't, wouldn't have to file anything or wait for anything. And th- that would probably be a good thing to do, at least in the process while you're waiting for it to be registered. So what is the trademark process like as far as what you have to do and how long it takes and the approximate cost of doing that? Well, I'm happy to kind of go through that. I've been, again, doing these for like close to 20 years. And I learn new things every day about it. So it's definitely a complex process. You know, you could certainly can file your trademark on your own, but I like to say you can also pull your own teeth. But you know, most people, uh, most people choose to go to a professional. And so, yeah, I mean, the basics of it is that 
when you file a trademark application with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, you are claiming as though you're standing in a court of law that you believe in good faith that you have the sole and exclusive right to use this mark in the United States in interstate commerce in connection with these particular goods and services. So that means when you file the application, you need to identify the exact products and or services that you're providing. So maybe that's podcast services, maybe that's business consulting, maybe that's you're selling a food product, maybe that's whatever it is, whatever it might be. But you need to identify the specific goods and services. And then you file the application, it gets reviewed. At some point, you're going to need to show the trademark office with visual evidence that you're actually providing those services. So maybe you're taking screenshots of your website or we're taking photos of an actual product if it's a physical product. There's all different ways that we go through the process to show and prove use. And then eventually... Ideally, the actual trademark registration will issue. In terms of the timing, it can be quite a long time. I mean, I just kind of say as an average, again, having done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these, that if things go reasonably well from start to finish, you're looking at about eight to nine months from the date that you file to the date that you get the registration. Sometimes it's much longer than that. And that can be for any number of reasons, conflicts or variety of other reasons. But what's important to know is that the date that you file the application, so the first date that we actually submit and file the application with the trademark office, that's kind of in a sense, the most important date, because that's the date that you get what we call federal priority, meaning as soon as you file that trademark application, it's public information, anybody can look it up, anybody can do their own due diligence about their brand name or logo or whatever and look it up. And so if somebody comes along after that date and tries to use the same name, for example, for similar goods or services, the long and short of it is they're they're basically out of luck because you you were there first and you've already filed. Of course, there could be exceptions, but you know, just talking on a general basis. So it's not like you need to wait all the way till the end of the registration before you get anything. It is it, it's time consuming. It does unfortunately take a while, but you get a lot of advantages just based on that filing in that first date. In terms of the cost, it really varies depending on a lot of different factors. Every attorney uh, or law firm is going to charge uh, a different amount based on the amount of experience they have or the complexity of the issue or whatever. Another thing that factors into the cost is that trademarks are broken up into many different categories or classes, as we call them, of goods and services. So any product or service that you can legally sell is going to fall into one or another category. But if you're selling multiple different types of goods or services, they may fall into multiple categories. And that what we call a multi-class application. So that is going to increase the cost, both usually in terms of the legal fee, but also in terms of the trademark office filing fees. Again, this is definitely a situation where you want to talk to a professional, you want to talk to an attorney who's been doing this for a long time and knows all the ins and outs. And they should be able to be very clear with you once they get the information from you, pretty much what those costs are going to be. Having done it long enough, you know, okay, this is going to cost this, this is going to cost that. There may be some variation, but you know, you want to do that due diligence and speak to somebody and really don't be afraid to ask when you're having that conversation, okay, what is this going to cost? Are the fees fixed or could they vary, etc.? Because you need to know that information before you get into that transaction and develop that relationship with the attorney. Okay. Yeah. That helps me kind of understand the process at least and the expectation as far as how long it can take. Another thing I wanted to talk about was fair use. When I was first starting my podcast and I was reading different things and whatever, people always say, oh, well, you can use clips from songs as long as it's under 30 seconds. But then I found out that that's not true. So what are examples of stuff that you can use under fair use? And I guess examples of things that you can't. Fair use is very important, but it is one of the 
most complex and least well understood by the general public aspects of intellectual property law. And even less well understood by lawyers sometimes as well. So I don't mean to knock the general public. It's very complex. It changes all the time. So just to kind of give a snapshot of it, the first thing to know is that fair use applies to copyright typically. There is trademark fair use. That's a different thing. But most of the time when we talk about fair use, we're talking about copyright. So the idea here is that copyright is a legal monopoly. The law gives the creator of the copyright or the owner of a copyright the exclusive right to use, to make copies, to distribute, etc., things that are protected under copyright. So that might be a piece of writing, a piece of music, a piece of film, a photo, an image, whatever it might be, software, etc., right? So that's the exclusivity held by the copyright owner. But the flip side is that we also... and. It's important to know also that copyright goes all the way back to the United States Constitution. So this isn't some new thing. The flip side of it is also in the Constitution is the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom to communicate about all different types of topics, whether those are commercial, political, personal, whatever it is, right? So there's kind of a tension there. There's a conflict. Because on the one hand, you say the law says, okay, you, Mr. Copyright Owner or Ms. Copyright Owner, you have the sole and exclusive right to use this. On the flip side, it says, you, Mr. or Ms. whatever citizen, you have the right to speak and communicate. And, and, and sometimes people need to use the, these copyrighted works to speak, to communicate, and to, to get their message across. So how do we resolve that? The way we resolve it is through this concept called fair use. So fair use is a defense to a claim of copyright infringement. So what that means is that you can't use something and then say, hey, this is fair use. You can't hashtag fair use. You can't just write that somewhere. I mean, you could do that, but it doesn't do you any good. You can't declare something to be fair use. The only way you know if something is fair use is if you get sued for copyright infringement, and then you go to court and you say, your honor, this lawsuit should be dropped because this falls under the fair use doctrine of the copyright law. And if the court agrees, then it's fair use. Really, that's the only way to know for sure. It's again, a defense that applies just like you have a defense in a criminal case. This is a type of defense that only applies once there's actually been a claim of infringement. So then you go, okay, well, what is fair use? What's not fair use? You kind of alluded to this, Sarah, and I'm really happy that you did. I can tell you're kind of ahead of the game here. There are people out there, and sometimes even lawyers, lawyers and regular people <laughs> who will tell you, you know, you can use 30 seconds of a song, or you can use 14 seconds, or you can use one paragraph of a piece of writing, or you can use this much of a photo or whatever, and it's fair use. All of those people are wrong. <laughs> I'm just here to tell you, none of those people know what they're talking about. They might be great people and otherwise very wise, but do not listen to them when it comes to fair use and copyright law, because they are wrong. This is definitely black and white in the sense that they it just doesn't work that way. The law does not say anywhere, it's never written in any case or any statute or any law that you can use X percent of this or this much of that. It just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. If it did, you know, things would be a lot simpler. But that's just not the way the law works. There are a variety of factors that a court is instructed to consider when trying to determine whether something is or is not a fair use. I can just kind of throw a couple of those out there, but just it's important to know none of these one factors is going to definitely make something a fair use or not. But some of the things that courts will consider is was the use commercial or not? If the use is commercial, meaning it's attached to a business, you know, then maybe it's less likely to be considered fair use. So probably all of your listeners, if they're in the business world and they want to use something potentially for their business, you know, whether it's a podcast, whether it's whatever, that they're going to fall into that kind of commercial space. So that is one thing to consider. Whereas if it's for an educational purpose or nonprofit purpose or political commentary, those types of things get a little bit of a higher, a little bit more leeway 
in terms of whether something is considered to be fair use or not. And again, you can blend into two. You could have a business that makes political communication. Okay, so which one does it? All right, you can see how this can get really complicated really fast. Another thing, you know, another factor is how much is used. So there is, like I said, there's no specific formula or number, but the more you use of something, the less likely it is to be, or or the more likely that use is to be considered fair. So the less you use of something, the more likely you are to get away with it in terms of being able to use that fair use defense. But if you're using the core element like the hook part of a song, you know, the most popular part, well, you know, that may not really help you. Another thing is the concept of what's called transformativeness, meaning did you just use something and without permission, and then you just wanted to get away with it, and you're just trying to sell something or, you know, do whatever you want without having to create your own thing? Or were you actually transforming the original work by adding some valuable commentary, criticism, context, political commentary, social commentary, anything? Those circumstances tend to result in a court looking at it and saying, yeah, this is a this is a fair use. So let's just give an example. If you're talking about you want to use a music for the intro to your podcast, well, if you just stick a popular song in the front of it, that's not really, you're just using it you didn't want to pay for it, right? So that probably isn't going to meet the qualification. Whereas if you have a podcast where you talk about music criticism, and you're analyzing something and you use little pieces of music to compare and contrast and to say, okay, well, you know, listen to this, this is interesting, whether it's the lyrics or the music or whatever it might be, that is can be considered transformative and may be more likely to be considered a type of fair use. Again, Fair use is super complex. I can't possibly go through all the different twists and turns of it in a, in an interview like this. I mean, it could go on forever. But it is important for people to know those kind of high-level things, especially just to disregard anybody who tells you, oh, yeah, this is fair use, so you can go ahead and use it. Yeah, one specific thing that I'm curious about is the use of company logos. Like, say you're doing a blog post and you're talking about a particular company. Is it okay to use their logo within your post? Yeah, absolutely. And that really kind of gets into the trademark fair use, which is just kind of a whole nother factor altogether. But generally speaking, that's a little bit simpler. So when, when it comes to trademark law, let's say somebody owns a trademark, they have the, you know, they have their logo, like you mentioned, for example. So what rights do they have? Well, they have the right to use that mark exclusively in connection with their goods and services as a brand. If you're selling coffee, you can't go out and stick the Starbucks logo on your whatever generic cup of coffee. And I mean, you can't do that. That's their brand. They own the trademark. It's there's nobody, there's no question that that's uh, a trademark infringement. But if you just want to talk about your thoughts about different coffee shops and you want to refer to the name Starbucks, you want to use their logo as a kind of illustration for some reason, you know, that ties into what you're doing, you know, that's much more likely to be considered a, a fair use of a trademark because you're not using their logo in this example, to sell coffee. You're not deceiving the public into believing that your coffee is actually Starbucks coffee. You're using their logo to communicate some other piece of information, to give it a review, pro or con, to talk about the business aspects of Starbucks, to whatever it is you want to do. So you know that's an example of, of, a, of a situation where it is okay to use somebody else's name or logo. And a lot of people are scared about that because they think like, wait, well, you know, Ford Motor Company owns the word Ford. Well, they don't. I mean, it's just a word. Apple computer doesn't own the word Apple. Otherwise, none of us would be able to buy Apple juice. It you know, it just doesn't work that way. But again, you can't create your own computer and stick the Apple logo on it or call it an Apple computer because they own the brand. They own the right to that particular trademark in the context of those goods and services. So really, the question is, am I using this brand name? Am I using this logo in a context that is going to confuse the public or make the public think that my products are coming from this other company? Or am I using it just to communicate in some other way, accurate information about the company or about some of their products or something like that? 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So an- another thing I wanted to talk about was disclaimers, you know, like in the bottom on the footer of a website is just, I guess, the differences and which ones are really needed as far as like terms of use, privacy policy, GDPR, affiliate disclaimer, etc. Yeah, these are all really situations that depend on the particulars of your business. Generally speaking, if you have a website, especially anything that is commercial, you do need to have terms of use. And ideally, that's written by somebody, you know, an attorney who knows how to do that and does it all the time. And on a privacy policy as well, especially if you're collecting anybody's information in any way, shape or form. So if you have a sign in thing or login thing for your website, or you're collecting people's information for marketing purposes, or any other reason, you really need to understand the privacy laws. And then you're your website needs to have a privacy policy. So it's not just that you need a privacy. You actually need to know what those rules are. You need to have been advised about them to know that you're following the rules. And then your privacy policy has to reflect exactly what those rules are, what you do and what you don't do with that information and to be in compliance. And the privacy laws change all the time. So you know it needs to be kept up and revised as necessary. GDPR is just a European Privacy Act. It applies to uh, all citizens of the EU. And the trick with that is that it doesn't apply to people who are inside the EU right now. It applies to citizens of the EU. So you may have a customer or a client of your business who lives next door to you, but they may be a citizen of Germany or Spain or France or whatever. You know, you don't even know. How would you ever even know if you're doing an online business what country somebody's a citizen of? So something like GDPR, a lot of people look at that and go, well, I'm an American-based business, and so I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to know about it. You know, that's over in Europe, et cetera. It's not that way because you may your business may be impacted by these rules. And so, again, it's just really important to make sure that you are working with somebody that understands the rules, that's keeping up with it, and that drafts and revises these things all the time just to make sure that you're being advised what the rules are and that you're following them and properly disclosing. In terms of other types of disclaimers and disclosures, every business is different. If you have a business where you're, let's say you have an, a wedding video business, right? So like you may need disclaimers or you may need waivers from your clients that they're agreeing to allow you to film at their wedding and who has the right to own the photos or the videos. You know, what happens if something is filmed that somebody doesn't like? Do they have the, you know, there's all different types of things. Every business is going to be different. So something like terms of use privacy policy, anybody with a website basically needs those. Whereas something like disclaimers, disclosures, waivers, things like that, that totally depends on the specific business that you're in and your specific circumstances. Oh, okay. And as far as the GDPR, I know a lot of websites, they have like this little pop-up thing, but I just have it in my footer. Does it have to be a pop-up? Is that recommended? You mean in terms of the authorization to collect information? Yeah, I guess so. Uh Yeah. So, I mean, the best practice is that all information that's provided is on an opt-in basis. So whether it's GDPR or anywhere else, I mean, that's just the way the world is going. I can't speak to the specifics of GDPR for a particular business and whether it applies. There's also California has a recent new privacy act that applies to some businesses and not others, etc. And this is going to change between the time we record this and the time somebody listens to the podcast, it might change again. So I definitely don't want to like lead somebody down the wrong path or give somebody the wrong information. But But in terms of collecting information about your customers, your potential customers, your potential clients, whatever it is, opt-in is always the best way to go. Meaning somebody needs to affirmatively you know, click a box or check a box or do something to say, yes, I consent to you collecting my information and to communicating with me, whether that means an email list or, you know, whatever that might be. Back in the old days of the internet, you know, it was a little bit more like opt out was maybe the, the, the way things were, where you just collect people's information. And then if they didn't want it, they would have to unsubscribe. But more and more, the laws in different places are, are 
disfavoring that. And so generally speaking, the best practice is to make sure that if you're collecting somebody's information that they've authorized, they've had the opportunity, they may or may not review the whole terms and conditions. I know nobody ever really does, at least not all the time, but you want to make sure that they've had the opportunity to see what's being done with that content and that they have affirmatively authorized the use of it. And I guess that's probably why I keep seeing like pop-ups for cookies. Like, do you accept these cookies? I guess that would be kind of a similar thing. Yeah, it's kind of a similar thing. You know, I mean, most people probably just click yes and move on or they click whatever they click. But yeah, I mean, it is kind of for a, for a similar purpose where if your website does collect cookies, which is kind of a tracker that follows somebody across the internet that the, you know, they've been notified. So nobody can come along and file a lawsuit and say, hey, you collected my information using this cookie technology and you didn't authorize it. Well, now it just kind of became best practice practice, although it can be kind of annoying to have to click every time you go to a new website, it is an important form of protection. Okay. So if your website hasn't been updated, let's say you have a website for your business, maybe you haven't even looked at your terms and conditions or your privacy policy or any of these types of things for five years. It's always good to look at these things from time to time and to be in touch with an attorney and just make sure, okay, this is one of these things where it's like good hygiene, like getting a checkup from your doctor or whatever, you know, you just gotta, you gotta do it every so often just to make sure everything's looking good over there. And I know there's a lot of websites out there now that will, you input your information, like your business name and whatever, and it will automatically generate some prefix terms of use or privacy policy. Is that okay when you're first getting started or would you stay away from that completely? You know, I never like to say something is the right choice or the wrong choice. That's just not the way that businesses operate. I have several businesses, small businesses that I own. And so I know just like anybody else that especially when you're first getting started, you need to make hard choices and you need to, you can't do everything you want to do day one. You never get everything right day one and you can't always check every box off day one. So if what makes sense for your business is to you know, look at something that's out there and say, okay, yeah, maybe it would be great for me to hire a lawyer for this, but I, you know, it just doesn't make sense right now or I'm going to do it you know, once I see that the business has some traction or whatever. I'm not saying to do that or not. I'm just saying that's a rational decision that a business could make. I don't know what's out there in terms of pre-formatted privacy policies in terms of conditions. I don't know how often they're updated or how they're up to date with the law, etc. You know, I would have no way of knowing that. But I don't look down on any business that uses an online tool instead of paying a lawyer because it can be expensive and you have to prioritize. You know, So maybe you say, look, I know I need to hire an attorney, but I'm going to put my resources right now into working with my attorney to form an LLC because I think that's just the higher priority or I'm going to work on my trademarks or I'm going to make sure this attorney like writes really great contracts. So I just have contracts all in place for my clients or customers. You know, Those are all different expenses and you ne- can't necessarily do everything at once. So it's like I said, it might be a rational decision, but with anything, you always want to know the pros and cons. Ideally, at least talk to an attorney so you understand, okay, what's the advantage of going this way versus that way? And then you know, okay, this is the risk I'm willing to take over here. Over here, I'm not, I don't want to take that risk. And every business is risky. I mean, if you're starting a business, there's risk. And so you got to be informed about it. You have to know what the pros and cons are, what the risks are, et cetera, and then make an informed executive decision. But, you know, that said, sure, you know, if that's the right solution for your business, at least on a temporary basis, I, I certainly wouldn't look down on it. Yeah. And the last thing that I kind of want to touch on is something that I saw on your website that I had never even heard of before called entertainment and social media law. Can you explain that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, you know, a lot of people think of entertainment law as some Hollywood lawyer, like, in, I don't know, entourage or some TV show or movie. But nowadays, we're all involved with the media in some way, shape or form, especially if you're in business, you might have a YouTube channel, you might have online presence, you might have TikTok or some other social media thing that I haven't even heard of yet, but it's probably super popular. You know, it could be anything. So we're all kind of involved in the media in some way, shape or form. So while I wouldn't necessarily call that quote unquote, entertainment law, it is kind of similar. I mean, I do entertainment law. I work with clients. You know, some of my clients are filmmakers, musicians, artists, etc. That's a separate kind of line of business. But in terms of social media, there are definitely aspects of the law that nobody ever would have thought of back 20 years ago when I was in law school. There was no such thing as social media. But now this is the way that we interact. This is the way businesses communicate. And so the law is going to apply. So one thing that comes up a lot in terms of that is disclaimers in terms of online advertising content. Again, without getting into every last nook and cranny of it, the Federal Trade Commission in the US kind of governs online communications by businesses. And they have a set of rules and guidelines. I've got a bunch of this stuff on my website, like you said, that inform businesses about how they have to communicate. So if you're, let's say, let's say you make a product and you give it to an influencer in exchange for them posting about it on Instagram, right? So that's an ad. It doesn't have to be a Super Bowl ad to be an ad. Anything like that, you know, where there is some kind of quid pro quo does need to be disclosed and there's proper ways to disclose it and there's right ways and wrong ways. Now, I'm sure you're going to see on social media today, some famous person or influencer or whatever, um, talking about some product that they're probably got paid for, they got it for free or something, and they're not going to disclose that it's an ad and they're not going to use the right terminology. That's their problem. The law can go after them and and deal with it however they want. But I'm here to tell you that there are rules about this and that you know the government does have an interest in making sure people follow those rules. What you don't know can hurt you. And so you want to make sure that you are properly disclosing the nature of the relationship, the nature of the exchange, and making sure that that, you know, if you're working with, let's say, an influencer or somebody else online who's going to talk about your products, that they understand the rules that they're in compliance because it's not on them necessarily. It might also be on you, on your business, because you're the one who ultimately is, you know, providing a product or service that they're talking about. So again, don't just rely on somebody else to take care of this for you. You do need to know the rules and to make sure that you know you're you're following them. So, like I said, I've got tons of resources about all this stuff on my website, so people can check it out, and of course, they can follow up with me or another attorney. Who, who works in these areas if they have specific questions. Okay, cool. Yeah, and that website is L-I-Z-E-R-B-R-A-M law. Dot com. That's and- right. And there's only one David Lizabram. So <laughs> if you if you want to find any of this stuff, type in my name. If you guess close enough, you're going to get it <laughs> and you'll find my website. I'm pretty easy to find online. And yeah, so like I said, Sarah, you know, I just want to make sure everybody knows that there's t- I've got hundreds of blog posts and all kinds of other resources out there for people who, who want to find this stuff. And I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I do it because I want people to be educated about this stuff. Yeah, there are a lot of information and free resources like different PDFs that you have on your website and all kinds of different stuff. So, and then obviously, if someone would like to hire you or talk to you more about these various things we talked about, they can contact you through there as well. And I'll also have show notes kind of covering all this different stuff we talked about at the com forward slash law, just to keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I really appreciate your time today. 
Oh, my pleasure. I really do enjoy the opportunity to speak to business owners, entrepreneurs. You know, unfortunately, there a lot of times this information is just hard to find or people have the wrong info in their head and, and what they don't know, like I said, can hurt them. And, you know, I think it's important to make sure that people have the information they need to go out and start businesses. That's the engine of our economy, especially right now. I mean, when you and I are speaking right now, we're just coming out of this pandemic and th- things are starting to look up. Hopefully they just continue <laughs> up and up. And that's just going to be because of people who are starting businesses, creating new products and services. And the the less trouble people get into with the law, the more they can focus on doing what they're passionate about or what they, you know, have expertise in. And I think that's really important. Yeah, definitely. And thanks so much for your time and for breaking down the definitions and examples of all these different things. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, anybody can search me out. I'm always happy to answer questions if I can or provide guidance. And if it's not me, that's totally fine. Uh, there's plenty of really good lawyers out there. Just make sure you're getting the right advice and asking the right questions and, and making the right decisions for you and your business. Definitely. I've obviously used legal services for LLC, but I'm now thinking about other things and whatnot. So I'll probably go to you when I need those things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you and I can talk offline, Sarah. But yeah, well, I appreciate that. That's great. If you enjoyed and found value from this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you rate, review, subscribe, and share at ratethispodcast.com forward slash frugalpreneur. Until next time. Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack, connect with fellow listeners, share your thoughts on episodes, engage in meaningful discussions, including money-saving tips and entrepreneurial insights, and help shape the future of the Frugalpreneur podcast. Plus, you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be featured on the show. Let's build a supportive space together. Join us now at frugal.show forward slash slack. See you on the inside.